With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content, but their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at BehindTheKnife.org. Applications are due February 13th. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Megan Lombardi, a fourth-year general surgery resident. I'm Sasha McEwen, a third-year general surgery resident. I'm Gio Oliveira, one of the fifth-year general surgery residents. I'm Alex Toledo, one of the transplant surgery attendings. And I'm David Gerber, also one of the transplant surgery attendings here at the University of North Carolina. Today we're going to be discussing a review article called Renal, Renal Normal Thermic Machine Perfusion, The Road Toward Clinical Implementation of a Promising Pre-Transplant Organ Assessment Tool. This review article was published in 2022 on transplantation by Tim Hamelink and colleagues from the Netherlands and Belgium. The increased utilization of high-risk renal grafts for transplantation requires optimization of pre-transplant organ assessment strategies. Current decision-making methods to accept an organ for transplantation lack overall predictive power and have some subjectivity. Normal thermic machine perfusion, or NMP, creates a near-physiological conditions which might facilitate a more objective assessment of organ quality before transplantation. It is rapidly gaining popularity with various transplant centers developing their own protocols and renal viability criteria. However, To date, no validated sets of on-pump viability markers exist, nor are there unified NMP protocols bringing the key question that needs to be answered to what to assess while a kidney is on the pump. Multiple parts are involved, the perfusate composition, which may vary depending on the reason why NMP is being used, and many groups develop their own perfusates, like Toronto, Cambridge, Brussels, Cleveland, Sydney, Rotterdam, and others. Another factor is the arterial pressure provided by the pump. If this would be pulsatile or not, which type of pump to be used, uh, the ranges of uh, mean arterial pressure that has been have been used between 40 and, any, and 95 millimeters of mercury, but the most used one is the 75. Also, the oxygen concentration usually used at a super physiological level. And the temperature is also important and may vary depending on the aim of NMP, but usually it's set to 37 degrees. And ischemia-free kidney transplantation is another promising strategy to mitigate ischemic and hypothermia-induced injury. The last factor to be considered is the replacement of urine made by the ex vivo kidney to ensure no loss of circulating volume. 
NNP has also the potential to be used as a diagnostic platform. The article lists many potential biomarkers that can be used to assess nephron function, injury, and overall kidney viability. The latter, closely related to endothelial damage. Parameters used to assess this include the flow, resistance, and the response to vasoactive substances. Lastly, the removal of circulating leukocytes and cytokines is thought to minimize inflammation and ischemia reperfusion injury. Another important question is when to start NMP. The optal timing depends on the aim of its use, preservation, viability assessment, or repair. The potential to ameliorate renal preservation and provide repair demands longer times. Using it as an assessment tool has a wider range of options. But currently, a short period of NMP at the recipient center is the most commonly reported strategy, allowing to assess organ quality immediately before transplantation. A second strategy would be to assess organs just after retrieval and avoiding the transport or traveling with, with the machine. Also, centralization of NMP use could enhance quality and improve standardization. NMP is technically complex, time-consuming, and entails a risk of technical failure, which will leave the organ exposed to ischemia at normal thermic temperatures. So far today, there's, there are no truly standalone renal NMP devices available, requiring any perfusion to be supervised at all times. And of course, the cost and logistics of this must be taken into account. So, Dr. Toledo, what are some of the current techniques for organ preservation? Well, when we look at organ preservation, historically, there's several different areas that have been, um, you know, that we've been trying to do some research in. One is the preservation solution itself and looking at some of the key elements of that. Uh, obviously, a preservation solution, we would want to uh, be able to uh, minimize uh, oxidative injury during the uh, time that the organ is out of the body. Uh, we'd also want to have some sort of substrate in there to, uh, to help uh, aid in recovery of the cells during this um, ischemic time. And then finally, we uh, look for ways to decrease the metabolic rate in general. And traditionally, that's been hypothermia. So uh, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is uh, what type of preservation are we going to use? There's cold static storage, uh, which is sort of traditionally what we have used probably over the last, say, 30, 30 plus years. And that's uh, where you most commonly see in the kidney comes from parts unknown uh, in a bag of preservation solution, which is on ice or surrounded by ice. Uh, with the goal of keeping the kidney around a, a temperature of around four degrees Celsius, keeping that uh, the oxid, you know, the hypothermia, reducing the metabolic rate to some degree. And again, the mechanism of that isn't completely understood, but um, that cold static uh, storage is sort of uh, traditionally the gold standard. And then sometime in the early 2000s, um, cold storage, but this time with uh, pulsatile machine perfusion was introduced, and um, this paper we're talking about, some of the same authors uh, in this paper were involved in a study of cold uh, pulsatile perfusion, which is uh, when you see that kidney show up at the OR front desk and it's on that machine that sounds like it's kind of humming a little bit. And that is our uh, cold uh, machine preservation. And again, it's keeping the kidney cold, 
It's using a solution that probably has some additives, just like cold storage would, uh, to minimize oxidative stress and those things. And if you go through the, the paper, you know, you'll see different things that are kind of in the majority of, there's probably five or six different preservation solutions, but uh, most of them have some combination of a colloid or adenosine or uh, uh, glutathione, other things that are going to minimize the oxidative stress and provide some sort of substrate. But uh, that machine preservation um, was demonstrated, you know, just after, you know, in the early 2000s to um, have some advantage in minimizing delayed graft function and even out to one year providing some uh, improval in uh, graft function or graft survival. So uh, those are sort of the two things that uh, we have used traditionally. And then this paper explores uh, using uh, normal thermic instead of hypothermic uh, machine preservation. And uh, incumbent on that is that you'd have to use, uh, when we're at normal thermic preservation, that's going to have uh, different uh, cellular metabolism that's going to be elevated, so you can't use the same preservation solutions. Sometimes blood components are used and such like that, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But... Um, a lot of this technology is also uh, being applied in other organs, uh, which Dr. Gerber, you may want to touch on. Yeah, no, thank, thanks, Dr. Toledo. That was a great review. Um, <clears throat> I think, as you said, right, this has started to, uh, how should we say, inculcate itself into the other fields of organ transplantation, liver being one that we're starting to see where it could be used. And as you pointed out, uh, you know, certain different variables that we're seeing, you know, what what the perfusion model does for us. It allows us to evaluate the organ in ways that we couldn't in the static system to get more information that we could potentially match organs to certain recipients in better ways based on um, strati stratifying what we think the organ looks like, how it's doing on the perfusion, getting more readouts also allows us to recondition organs so they go from that inert state that ischemic state and helps minimize that ischemia that's certainly an issue as you pointed out with delayed graft function that's that's a bigger issue in liver with ischemia reperfusion injury that that could be mitigated with some of the perfusion technology um, and as you pointed out still trying to figure out you know we've we've been rooted to sort of that hypothermic state the four degree stabilization point for organs prior to implantation but do we know that that's really the best state that science really goes back to the probably the 60s and some of this really innovative and new questions that people are asking which is what is the ideal temperature state that helps with minimizing ischemia reperfusion and maybe it's four degrees maybe it's 10 degrees maybe it's up in the 20 degrees celsius range and I think we're seeing more of this really, it, these advances help change how we're approaching transplantation. Some of the other advantages also is it, it, you know, transplant is a predictably unpredictable field and organ perfusion is allowing us to put some stabilization and control in that, that, that reconditioning state actually goes on for several hours. Um, and I think as we're still trying to learn where, what's the ideal time, the optimal period that we're using perfusion. We're also allowing ourselves to turn trans a field that's 
regulated in the sense that we're not doing tra all our transplants in the middle of the night and doing transplants, you know, starting in daylight time, which I know for many of us sitting in the room is sort of a, an odd sighting, starting a transplant <laughs> when the sun's coming up versus when it's well down. Um, and I will say, you know, what's, what this study certainly touches on this review, um, I think the European community has, has really been ahead of us in North America in incorporating perfusion technology into their field. Uh, on a recent visit, I had, I was talking to one of my, our colleagues who's in Austria, and he spoke about in his ICU routinely having two or three livers on pump being managed by an anesthetist and an ICU nurse um, so they could determine which organs they would be able to use, you know, and sort of not just using, you know, fat deposition as being a grayed out, but looking at actual performance of the organ. And I think that's where the field is really starting to go. So hopefully at some point, not just is a, uh, is a therapeutic thing, but is also a diagnostic tool for us. We can look at the pump parameters and in the future, hopefully there are numbers uh, and, mar and uh, cellular markers we can look at to assess the viability of the organ and be able to uh, correctly choose uh, recipients. So there's some of the big advantages um, that I see uh, in terms of machine uh, preservation and some of the diagnostic and therapeutic uh, advantages it'll have in the future. So those are some of the things that come to me off the top of my head. Dr. Gerber, what do you think are other uh, potential uh, advantages of this? No, that's great. I think you really hit on the big one, certainly, is the reducing the organ discard rate. That is one of the biggest challenges we've faced. Um, and as you alluded to, those biomarkers that we could look at on the organs also then allow us to figure out how to treat the organs in a way that reconditions them to optimize their function in the recipients. Which again, thinking about the organ as almost a patient that we're treating, um, that is something that we, again, in a static world, we're not able to do. And even with some of the early stage perfusion technology, it very superficially allowed us to do this. This will allow us to actually get readout information on what changes we make. So um, again, improving the quality while also improving quantity. Dr. Toledo, like you mentioned, there, there are a lot of advantages and promising points, but uh, is there any uh, disadvantage or downside of, uh, of using machine perfusion or, or these techniques? I don't know if there's a downside necessarily, but I think one thing to keep in mind, it is a very dynamic field and very exciting field, and I think everyone in general is very optimistic about it. But one of the things to keep in mind is that there are so many moving parts right now in this field. There's the preservation solution. There are, um, there's the temperature itself that we're uh, storing it at. There's various different degrees between uh, hypothermic and normal thermic. So uh, those are different variables. Um, the flow, what pressure do we use? Uh, the oxygenation, how much, you know, what... Uh, how high do we want to increase the levels of oxygen in the preservation solution, uh, how long we're going to leave it on the machine, whether we're just going to use it for marginal organs or if we're using it for all organs. There's so many different variables, and those are all changing in real time at the same time, and every center is using something slightly different. So I think there's some uh, caution when we look at all the data and try to figure out uh, best practices. So there are no best practices with this. We're still very early in the evolution of it. 
and all those things need to sort of be uh, sorted out and kind of have a consensus before I think we can figure out what is the uh, best approach of all these things. And um, beyond that, I think um, we need to look, the, there's no validated uh, biomarkers at this point either for when we look at if we're helping the kidney during this preconditioning or uh, during this preservation phase uh, prior to transplant. So I think we need to have validated biomarkers as well. And we're still early in the process. Like I said, everyone's optimistic that this is a great way to increase the overall organ pool and decrease our discard rate. As Dr. Gerber mentioned, discard rates in the U.S. approach 20% for kidneys. So we know there's a lot of organs out there, and maybe we can push the envelope even further with, uh, with just increasing the organ pool overall if we have these mechanisms to keep the kidney well-preserved during this window and not just preserve, but maybe be therapeutic, get that kidney even better than it came to us. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity there, and we're very excited about that, but there are so many moving parts that uh, it's good. It, it'll be important to figure out which elements are best and which elements provide value and which don't provide value, because I'm sure, Dr. Gerber, as you can talk to, the logistics and the cost are also big things that come into play with this technology. Yeah, perfect segue, and, and you're right. Learning about how we how we adjust parameters to figure out how we optimize the organ, but the logistics piece is, is going to be a big part because currently there, in the U.S., there are I believe three or four systems that are approved by the FDA for use. They're not compatible with one another. So if a center is using one system, and an organ's recovered by a different organ um, procurement organization on a different system. There and adds a different level of challenges, and I think we'll see more, um, more, more systems coming online, getting approved both in Europe and the U.S. and, and globally as well. And how those all have different, different strengths and weaknesses within themselves that's separate from the perfusion fluids that that they're each using, and. The point that you bring up, right, the financial piece is something that we're all still trying to wrap our heads around because um, with each one of these systems, there is a cost to doing that. How do you figure out how to do that? And along with that cost is the portability cost. So you have organs that are being recovered in one state and then are moving to find the recipient that could be 250 nautical miles away from that, from where the organs recovered. How do we transport those organs safely? Um, being able to track them the entire way and who's in charge of managing those organs and getting that real-time data back to the receiving center. Those are issues, almost hub-and-spoke issues, that we haven't really dealt with in the static preservation system, but that we really do have to reevaluate in the U.S. as we have more perfusion technology um, becoming part of our de rigueur of organ transplantation. I think another thing that we may not have touched on is that when we look at normal thermic preservation, that's different than our, our cold preservation machines where if the machine somehow malfunctions, the kidney is still on ice. It's still being uh, preserved in near industry standard settings. Uh, in the normal perfusion world, if that 
equipment malfunctions, there has to be somebody on site immediately to take care of that organ because it, it's then all of a sudden basically just warm ischemia. Probably the most, uh, you know, it's an order of magnitude more dangerous, probably even more so than that, than cold ischemic time. So we don't, uh, it, this is not a standalone technology. In 2022, there's got to be someone on site running that normal thermic preservation machine at all times. So um, the amount of infrastructure and personnel that you need is much different than um, our current system. So that's uh, probably a limitation, but hopefully something that um, uh, has been worked out, as Dr. Gerber mentioned, at some of the larger centers. And, and hopefully that's uh, uh, something that uh, when we look at cost, perhaps the cost, um, you know, transplantation is, um, to the healthcare system in general, is uh, a net positive event. So the hope is, is that if this increases the donor pool in the macroeconomic scheme of things, if it increases the donor pool uh, and we have more organs that we're transplanting, there's a uh, cost savings to the healthcare system and that maybe that's offset by the increased expenses of uh, normal thermic machine perfusion, but uh, TBD, I'm sure on that. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.